This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was chaos at the heart of American democracy when a mob of pro-Trump rioters stormed the Capitol, breached the security barriers, terrorized lawmakers, and vandalized the offices in congressional chambers, delaying the certification of the Electoral College vote. President-elect Joe Biden was blunt. They weren't protesters. Don't dare call them protesters. They were a riotous mob, insurrectionists, domestic terrorists. And Biden was not alone in blaming President Trump for inciting his followers. Lawmakers like Republican Senator Mitt Romney also placed the blame on Trump. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the president of the United States. Joining me is an expert in national security law, former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Clearly, the Capitol Police were unprepared with all the notice, some from Trump himself with much of the nation bracing for what might happen and with threats of violence on social media. Should they have been prepared for this? They had forewarning literally weeks in advance. I mean, Trump on Twitter had notified the world that that he was again recruiting his followers to come to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And he said, you know, be looking out. This is going to be like something you've never seen before. It's going to be powerful. I mean, so it was clear that, again, he was recruiting his followers to come to D.C. for this event. And then, of course, at the rally before the actual assault on the Capitol building, he's firing up his supporters and telling them to take back America. And then in order to do so, you have to be strong. We have to use act with strength, which is code words for violence. So there was plenty of time to prepare, and it's inexcusable. I mean, this should never have happened in America. And thank God it wasn't worse than it actually was. I mean, had these protesters been more heavily armed when they took siege of the Capitol building, we could be talking about today the killing of members of Congress, the killing of senators, violence on a much larger scale than what was witnessed This can never be permitted to happen again, and I'm hopeful that the new administration immediately initiates an investigation or commission to get to the bottom of this and determine what went wrong and to ensure that it never happens again. Would you call this an insurrection, an attempted coup? What would you term this? Well, it's certainly an insurrection, you know. It certainly falls within the seditious conspiracy statute. It's an act of sedition. It was an attack either to overthrow the government by violence or to prevent the enactment of laws by violence, which is also prohibited by the sedition conspiracy statute. These people wanted to disrupt Congress's fulfillment of their constitutional duties under the 12th Amendment. That's what was driving them. The timing of this wasn't accidental. You know, their presence on January 6th, they're storming the Capitol building while Congress was in session undertaking its constitutional duties. That was not a coincidence. This was an attempt to disrupt, to prevent them from fulfilling those constitutional obligations, from certifying the electors and then certifying Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. And I would say further that it was certainly anti-democratic. 
because one of the principal cornerstones of our democracy that we have cherished over the last 200 plus years is the peaceful transfer of power. There's a range of crimes the riders could be charged with, from misdemeanors to felonies, from vandalism to sedition. Does it seem like they're going to be charged with the lower-level crimes, vandalism, breaking and entering, etc., rather than sedition? Well, I would say certainly everyone that can be identified who is inside the Capitol building should be charged under the Anti-Riot Act because this clearly satisfies the requirements of the statute. I mean, these are people that traveled an interstate or used an interstate facility for the purpose of engaging in a riot for either inciting a riot or participating in a riot or facilitating acts of violence, which is what is required under the statute. And fortunately, many of these individuals were caught on video inside the Capitol building, and the FBI and other law enforcement agencies are going to be able to identify many of these perpetrators quickly. And once they're identified, they should be charged by the FBI and prosecuted by the Department of Justice. The U.S. Attorney's Office, I mean, it could be U.S. Attorney's Offices in the districts where these individuals reside or in the District of Columbia where the offenses were actually committed. On the question of sedition, I think here we're talking about, again, a conspiracy, and I think a conspiracy can be proven through their concerted action. And their concerted action, their intent, again, was to, by the use of violence, to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. That's language from the seditious conspiracy statute to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. And the law of the United States that they were attempting to prevent was the 12th Amendment, was the certifying of the electors, the recognizing of the electoral votes, and the certifying of the president. I want to get your take on why the Capitol Police allowed the rioters to leave the Capitol building. We saw video of rioters walking out of the building, yelling, threatening to come back, with a police officer actually holding the door open for them. Well, it was certainly at the very least a dereliction of duty. I can understand, you know, the argument that the Capitol Police felt that they were overwhelmed, that they didn't have sufficient numbers to prevent this assault on the Capitol building. That's one thing. But to actually be opening the door, assisting them as they're leaving, not attempting to prevent any of this illegal conduct that was taking place. These are officers, again, that took an oath to defend the Constitution, to enforce the law. They violated that oath. So this isn't simply a question or an issue of the government wasn't adequately prepared to deal with the crisis. I think that there are some officers that have to be held accountable for dereliction of their duties and responsibilities as law enforcement officers. It's shameful. It's nothing less than shameful. Beyond that, there was video of the Capitol Police letting rioters get past the barricades, moving the barricades even. Now, people will look at that and say, was there an order from above that led them to that course? It does raise an interesting question whether there was an 
order. Here's the other aspect of that, too. If you look at the videos and you see some of these protesters, they didn't seem intimidated at all or worried by the presence of the law enforcement officers of the Capitol Police. They were very confident. They were very smug in the action that they were taking. They weren't threatened at all, feel threatened at all by law enforcement. So that makes you wonder, that raises a question, was there some order either explicit or implicit for the Capitol Police to stand down? to not enforce the law, to not arrest these individuals. I mean, I watched literally two or three hours of footage on television and did not see a single arrest. Now we're told after the fact that there were, you know, individual arrests. Well, I, I witnessed hours and hours of illegal activity going on and did not see a police officer, a law enforcement officer, arrest a single individual. An investigation should result in the senior members, supervisors of the Capitol Police, police being fired and individual lower level officers being fired at a minimum, at a minimum. Our Capitol building, this symbol of democracy was desecrated in a way that should never have ever been permitted to happen in this country. And someone has to be held accountable for that. There's been a lot of commentary about the marked difference in the way the Trump administration handled the Black Lives Matters protests this summer with federal agents in riot gear, tear gas, rubber bullets. That's a fair point to raise because we saw over the summer the use of force that was employed against peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square. And again, as you stated, tear gas, rubber bullets, et cetera. We didn't see that here. And this was an assault on the Capitol building. It raises questions, you know, had these been black protesters, would they have ever been permitted to get that close to the building, let alone go into the chambers of the Senate, go into the chambers of the House of Representatives? I'm confident the Capitol Police would have found some way to restrain them. They wouldn't have made it halfway up the steps of the Capitol building before they were confronted with rubber bullets, tear gas, and even more lethal use of force. And so that's another issue that needs to be addressed in this inquiry. Is this a dual standard of justice here? So if you're a black protester, you're treated one way. But that if you're a white protester, and we all saw for ourselves that the, you know, 99% of these protesters are white protesters, they're treated differently under the law. Our democracy cannot witness and embrace a dual system of justice that depends on the color of the person's skin. The articles of impeachment have already been drafted. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been calling on Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump from office after the attack on the nation's capital by pro-Trump rioters. And Pelosi says the House will move forward on articles of impeachment if nothing is done. A very dangerous person who should not continue in office. This is urgent. This is emergency of the highest magnitude. I've been talking to national security law expert Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Top Democrats are calling on Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. It's never been used to remove a president. Do these circumstances fit the 25th Amendment? I think they do. It's actually Section 4 of the 25th Amendment that's applicable here. And that authorizes a president and a majority that's referred to as the principal officers. Basically, it would be the cabinet members. And, and in this particular case, it would require 13 cabinet members 
along with the vice president, to conclude that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. And so here I think you can make a compelling case that over the last two months, the President Trump has been obsessed with the presidential election and his defeat, and his behavior during that period of time has become erratic. He's unstable. He has abdicated his responsibilities with respect to the coronavirus pandemic. He's abdicated his responsibilities regarding a recent hacking attack by uh, Russia. So I think the prerequisite regarding his inability to discharge his powers and duties that's required under the amendment can be met. Once that is communicated in writing to the leaders of the House and the Senate, then the vice president immediately assumes the duty as the acting president. But that doesn't end it. I think President Trump would immediately contest that. And then it would fall back on the vice president to make a further determination of the president's lack of capacity to hold office. And I think that's probably about as far as we're going to get within that short period of time. But interestingly, that would deprive the president of his ability to stay in office for the balance of his uh, of his term. Now, it seems highly unlikely that Pence is going to invoke the 25th Amendment. So then we come to the Democrats' threats of a second impeachment. How much of the process could they get through in the time left till his term ends. It's highly unlikely that in that period of time, first of all, the Republican members of the House are going to be fighting this and they're going to be resisting this at every step. And so I think it's highly unlikely in days that, that there would be articles of impeachment that are submitted to the House that are debated, you know, that there are witnesses that are called and then a vote concluded on those articles of impeachment. And then, of course, that, again, would just be the charging document. Then it would be up to the Senate to decide. Again, it requires a two-thirds vote of the Senate to actually convict. It's just not practical. It's not feasible for all of that to happen. I think what's more realistic, again, if Vice President Pence took the initiative and, again, was able to get the support of 13 cabinet members, that he could become acting president and probably delay the final process here through the balance in the president's term. Thanks, Jimmy. That's Professor Jimmy Garulay of Notre Dame Law School. The votes in Georgia have been counted not once, not twice, but three times, and they confirm that President-elect Joe Biden beat President Trump by 11,779 votes. But in a 62-minute call last Saturday, Trump pressured Georgia officials, including the Secretary of State, to find thousands of votes and recalculate the election results to flip the state to him, just enough to pass Biden by one vote. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. The people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Georgia officials stood firm by the election results. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig of Lowenstein Sandler. The first broad question, did Trump break the law during this call? So I think the short answer is, is quite possibly, maybe leaning toward probably. 
you know, we don't have all the facts, but the call itself is, is a pretty darn good starting point. So both federal law and Georgia law are similar. In that bottom line, they say it is a crime to try to influence an election official to count ballots that were not actually cast. Now, clearly, Donald Trump is trying to influence and then some the Georgia Secretary of State, Raffensperger, he's overtly pressuring him, even threatening him with the potential of criminal prosecution of his own. And he's also clearly trying to pressure the Secretary of State to count votes in his favor. And votes that if you are tethered to reality, you know, were never cast, right? I mean, every source that has opined on this from DOJ to DHS to dozens of courts have said there was no such fraud. Perversely, I guess, the best defense of Donald Trump here would be he actually believes, truly believes that he got those votes. Because if he truly believes he had those votes, it's not a crime to ask an official to count votes that you truly believe were yours. You're not asking for some fraud to be committed if in your mind you truly believe those votes were for you. Now, that would require one to believe Donald Trump is delusional. Perhaps he is. And I also think it's a little bit in tension with the words Trump uses on the call. If I'm a prosecutor, going back to my prosecutorial role, I would say, why does he use the word find? We need to find these votes. That, to me, is a little different than we need to have a full counting of all the votes that were actually cast and that number. Remember, Donald Trump says we need exactly 11,870 or whatever, one more vote than he needed. That also is very conspicuous and different from we need to count all the votes. So I think at a minimum, prosecutors have to take a look here, investigate and sit down and make a very hard decision. I want to talk about some problems that may occur because the call is very meandering. He goes from topic to topic. He skirts the issue a lot and he keeps saying over and over that he won the election. So is that a problem? Well, so meandering, absolutely. It's not a problem that he never says, I would like you to perform this illegal act. I mean, that's certainly not required. And yes, it does complicate it, though, that Donald Trump repeatedly, he seems like he's almost reading off a a list or something of all these wild claims that have really come from Twitter or, you know, far, far right wing media. And I don't mean Fox News. I mean, farther right wing than that. And that would be the defense. If I'm Donald Trump's defense lawyer, I would argue he truly believes that he won this election and that he's entitled to have the Secretary of State recount these votes. And I think the argument is that may be a bad look, that may say something bad about his own mental stability, but legally it's a defense because, again, if you truly believe that votes were cast for you and you ask officials to count those votes, that's not a fraud, that's not a crime. That would be the difficulty in prosecuting this case, and that would be something that prosecutors would need to sit down and sort of puzzle through in meticulous detail. Is his ignorance of the law an excuse? He says, I didn't know that was a problem. No. Ignorance of law, it's a a motto, it's a saying, but it's true. Ignorance of law is not a defense. You don't have to know specifically that this exact conduct is prohibited by statute. You have to know generally that it's wrong. I do want to throw in one other potential wrinkle here. Clearly, Donald Trump threatens Raffensperger with criminal sanctions of his own, right? There's that weird passage where Trump says, what you're doing is actually a crime, Mr. Raffensperger. I'm paraphrasing here. It is a crime, a federal crime and a state crime to threaten somebody as part of an extortion, as part of trying to get something you want to threaten somebody with unjustified criminal charges. Now, 
there's no argument that Raffensperger committed a crime of any sort, but Trump uses that as a bully tactic. There is an interpretation of the extortion laws that could include that. And I think prosecutors ought to look at that as well. Do you really think that the threat is that explicit? He talks about a big risk of potential criminal charges. Do you really think that the threat is explicit enough? Well, that's the question. It's not as explicit as a prosecutor would like it to be, right? It's not, if you don't do this, I will go to the FBI and we will indict and prosecute you. That would be an example of the easiest case. This falls somewhere in the middle. And that's why I think that the exact verbiage is important. You know, he does say, you know, he gets fairly explicit about you're committing a crime and even has the weird exchange where Trump says something like, I'm putting you on notice. I'm notifying you right now, which is, I think, close to the line. But I I agree. It's not as explicit as other extortions that I've seen, for example, in the mob world. But that also doesn't necessarily mean he's in the clear either. Explain the willfully requirement in the federal law. So willfully essentially means um, with intent to commit a crime or to commit the elements of the crime. So that gets back to sort of the state of mind. Is the president in the deepest recesses of his mind? And by the way, this is the difficulty of any intent-based crime, right? So, for example, a robbery of a 7-Eleven is not an intent-based crime. You see someone come in with a gun and a mask and demand money, that's a robbery. But when you get into things like fraud, Then you have to get into the mind of the person. And did they really know what they were proposing was a fraud or was illegal? Or did they actually honestly believe that they were entitled to this or that it was legitimate? So that's the difficulty here. And, you know, if I was investigating this, I would start with the tape itself. Like I said, I would scrutinize the words on the tape. But I'd also I'd subpoena or want to speak with those around Donald Trump, the other people on that call. Is there evidence that before that call or after the call, he said to somebody, look, we're going to bend this guy to our will. Or is there evidence that he said things that evidence that he doesn't truly believe that he won? Look, there's been reporting out there that Donald Trump understands that he lost this election, but he's doing this for show or he's doing this to rally donations or support or to keep himself relevant. If you could find a couple witnesses to say, I spoke with Donald Trump. He told me, I know I lost this, but just I'm playing this game here, right? It's something to that effect I think would be a significant piece of evidence. And again, that goes to my point of why prosecutors need to at least dig in here and not just sort of glide past it. Two members of Congress referred the case to the FBI. Does that mean the FBI will actually do an investigation? No, it does not. There's this common misconception out there that there's some magic to a referral, a criminal referral. There's not. All it means is – and I've gotten referrals as a prosecutor from any source you can name, from members of the public, from politicians, you know, you name it. All it means is somebody has asked the FBI or whatever your law enforcement agency – to take a look. Now, referrals are taken seriously, and depending on both the source of the referral and the apparent seriousness of the conduct and, and the support for the con- conduct, referrals absolutely can lead law enforcement agencies and prosecutors to open cases to take a look. So it's significant, but it doesn't bind anybody to do anything. The next question is let's just suppose that enough evidence is found. Who would prosecute? Would the Justice Department under President-elect Biden, who said that he is not going to try to influence that the Justice Department is there to do its job. But are they going to want to start their administration by prosecuting a former president? That's a great question and and a very important question. Let's start with focusing on the federal authorities here, DOJ. 
Joe Biden has done one thing that I think is really important and good and one thing that I have an issue with. What he's done that I think anybody should approve of is he has said publicly and clearly, I will not get involved in the prosecutorial decisions of my attorney general. That will be entirely up to the new AG. I don't get involved in that. That is right. That is correct. That is as it should be. That's something Donald Trump himself frequently violated. What I don't approve of is the fact that Joe Biden reportedly told several people around him, and this was reported by NBC News. They say they had five sources saying, this is a few weeks ago, that Joe Biden has no interest in having his DOJ go down this rabbit hole of Donald Trump investigations, that he does not want to see his DOJ go that route. Now, Joe Biden's been around long enough, you know, 45, 48 years, that he understands that if he's going to make a comment like that to five different people, it's going to get out there. And so I don't like the fact that Joe Biden is doing that, and in so doing is putting a thumb on the scale of what the attorney general will do. Now, as a practical matter, if you're the new attorney general, if you're going to charge and prosecute a case against the former president, you have to understand that will consume all the oxygen, all the attention, all the focus off everything else you do, um, and probably everything else the presidential administration does until that actual trial happens and is over with. We're talking a year, 18 months. That is an enormous distraction. That is an enormous price to pay. I fully understand that, and I expect the new AG to, 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 to factor that in. On the other hand, I think it's really difficult for the new attorney general and new DOJ to just say, we, we're not even going to take a look. It's just too much of a hassle. It's just too difficult. We're not even going to bother with this. That I don't approve of either as a prosecutor. Look, part of your job as a prosecutor, a big part of your job is to make difficult decisions and to do things that ruffle feathers. And if the job of a prosecutor was to just look for the path of least resistance, then well beyond Donald Trump, there's plenty of powerful people who would never be investigated. There's plenty of wealthy people, well-connected people who you would just say, eh, too much trouble, people might resist, it might be too much of a circus. That to me is not the job of a prosecutor. So I will say this, at a minimum, I believe DOJ has a duty to investigate this, see what they find, but I do appreciate that it's a very difficult charge to bring. And I also do appreciate that it's unlikely that DOJ ultimately will charge the president. There may be a slightly different calculus for state-level prosecutors, but that's how I look at DOJ. What do you make of the fact that the U.S. attorney in Atlanta resigned one day after this phone call? Yeah, it, it's in some respects it's, it's suspicious. In some respects it's not. The timing, everything that's happening in Georgia, you, you can it's consistent with, I guess I'll say, we don't know what's going on, but it's consistent with he was asked to do something that he wasn't comfortable with doing, and that caused him to resign. It also is unusual that a U.S. attorney would resign with essentially no notice. Now, what's not unusual is this is resigning season, um, and it always is. Whenever you're about to have a change in administration, especially from one party to the other, all the U.S. attorneys start resigning around now um, or, or you know, up to January 20th, and then they're replaced fairly quickly by the new administration. That's the way things go, but usually the way that happens is the U.S. attorney, for example, in New Jersey, where I live, put out a public statement weeks ago, and he said, January 5th will be my last day. Um, you know, two weeks notice, three weeks notice. That's normally the way it goes. So it is unusual to me that this happened with essentially no notice. And also, one of the lawyers who was representing Trump on that call, Clea Mitchell, resigned from her law firm. Look, obviously, there was a lot of public pressure. I think the public was, by and large, revolted by what was heard on that call. 
and the lawyer, Cleta Mitchell, is part of it. And she's on board with what Donald Trump's doing. And I think most worrisome from my perspective, looking at her as an attorney, is she is completely espousing and supporting these conspiracy theories, these theories that have no basis in fact. And, you know, it's a difficult thing. I, I don't necessarily believe in going after someone's employment or profession or, or vocation if you disagree with what they've done. But there's also a line here that lawyers are not supposed to cross of just spinning utter fantasy. You are duty-bound to defend a client, including clients who may be guilty of things. But it is another matter altogether to affirmatively promote outright false statements and fictitious conspiracy theories. So that was ultimately the consequence for this attorney. Thanks, Ellie. That's former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please listen to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio.